Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For more than 50 years, the U.S. Army War College's Eisenhower Series College Program, or ESCP, has been designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of dialogue, War College students in the program travel across the country, speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and in other public forums. Here at A Better Peace, we hope to give our listeners a sense of what the ESCP students present by giving Eisenhower program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights by offering short versions of their Eisenhower speeches and discussing both the implications of their topics and their personal experiences with the program and at the War College in general. Today's podcast is one in a planned series for the class of 2023. Today's topic is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The U.S. Armed Forces, and especially the Army, have a broad mandate, not only to defend the nation, but to try, as best they can, to reflect the nation they are sworn to defend. Living up to those commitments is an ongoing challenge, requiring both a willingness to take risks and a careful attention to the needs of the force. Our guests today, members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2023, have studied aspects of DEI and join us to share their insights on both the challenges and the opportunities of DEI policy. Colonel Dina Goebel has over 35 years of combined enlisted and commissioned Army Reserve service. As a military police officer, her expertise is in detainee operations, specifically in Guantanamo Bay and in Iraq. As a civil affairs professional, she partnered with the Jordanian Armed Forces to enhance the integration of women into their military and liaised intergovernmental coordination for the Syrian refugee crisis. Most recently, she served in support of the Department of Homeland Security during the resettlement of Afghan evacuees. Lieutenant Colonel Kirk Daniels has served in the U.S. Army for over 20 years, commissioning from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Kirk's career has been equally split, formerly as an infantry officer and currently as a cyber officer. His last few assignments have largely focused on enhancing security cooperation with allies and partners, including planning tactical exercises to build interoperability among multinational forces, overseeing resolute support technical-based non-lethal effects in Afghanistan from 2019 to 2020, and most recently, serving as a cyberspace and electromagnetic warfare planner within NATO's Cyberspace Operations Center. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dina Goble. Welcome, Kirk Daniels. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron. It's great to have both of you here. I, uh, a big part of the Eisenhower program is the individual students give a speech to the audience uh, before the start of conversation. And we've invited 
uh, both Dina and Kirk to offer shortened versions of their speeches. Um, as we do on Wheel of Fortune, right uh, backstage, we drew straws. Actually, we didn't draw straws. I'm just about to tell them who's going to go first. We're going to go in um, in alphabetical order by last name. So I'm going to ask Kirk Daniels to go first. Kirk. Ron, thank you for the opportunity to speak with the podcast today. Um, I've had a great experience over the past year in the Eisenhower program. And the topic that I'd like to go ahead and share is about the characterization of wokeness in the military. And part of the, a large part of the interest developed, um, looking at a reflection of one of my key senior leaders, um, back in 2019 to 2020 in Afghanistan, I had one of my most, um, most influential leaders take an opportunity itself in the midst of the high op tempo of Afghanistan operations and battling with the, um, the balance itself between the COVID infancy that was having its impact upon operations. And he wanted to take a moment to actually sit down with me and discuss what is the Black Life Matters movements that is having a large expansion nationally and a large impact internationally. What did that actually mean to me? What did that mean as far as the safety of my family? And did I have any concerns? In addition, he wanted to know about inclusivity in the organization and whether or not whether or not we have it right. And overall, like he critically embodied the values itself of DEI without a scripted speech at all. It was just breaking an operational planning session to actually sit down and have a have a conversation. And that is what I think is most critical in the difficult conversations that we expect from senior leaders in order for the success of DEI. So looking at the topic, um, Largely, I, I wanted to look at the diverse table that you'd sit down for your meals with at any given moment in time and the different perspectives that you get among your family members, your friends, your colleagues, your associates. On one side of the table, you'll have your pro-American contingent, which is very much in support of the flag and everything that you do within the service for national security. On another side of the table, you'll have your family members that don't know much about the military outside of the actual what they see in the media and what they see in and across the um, video coverages that are that are existing. On another side of your table, you have your politically driven family members. And some of those may either feel like the military is not inclusive enough for um, gender, ethnic, or racial differences, and there's not an opportunity for success. And then on the last side of the table is um, friends or colleagues of yours who may perceive that the military is becoming too culturally aware. Uh, within that conversation, those talked about they may potentially not allow their sons and daughters to enter into the military because of the perceived wokeness that's ongoing and that it's breaking the bond of cult cultural blindness, which they feel is instrumental for, um, for their, their family members and for their children. So I largely looked at the definition of wokeness itself to start with and how did it evolve from being attentively aware of societal factors to being re reclaimed nowadays for the negative impact itself that's driven within the media. Um, and then I moved on to look at the history of how did DEI get associated with wokeness. Um, and largely what I found from looking at the wokeness of the military is, or largely what I found from looking at the DEI within the military is that it's been ongoing for really going back to World War II. If you look at the double victory, which um, African-American service members participated in, uh, specifically Tuskegee Airmen, they fought for democracy abroad. They fought for the rights back nationally. In addition, you have 1948 with, the, with uh, Executive Order 9981, which desegregated the military. 
which preceded the Supreme Court desegregation of, of public schools. So there's history itself of the military being on the right side of history when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it's been ongoing. It may not always be on the right side as far as reducing all disparagement among um, that among um, among minorities at large, but it's a learning organization to get more inclusivity across the board. And then as I moved into the impacts at risk, impacts and risk of wokeness, overall, you have critical impacts itself of potentially creating rift within your service members by the narrative of wokeness. You have the potential of evading or losing public trust because the potential potential perception that the military is reducing readiness based on its focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then also introducing the potential for partisanship in the military, which we've been largely successful based on the nonpartisan nature and how we support and defend the Constitution. And then lastly, for what I studied was looking at the anecdotes. How do we actually resolve the disparity in um, the mischaracterization of wokeness? And overall, I think there's key leadership elements that could take place all the way up from um, civilian military, civilian leaders overseeing the military down to um, junior leaders that are ac actually having community engagements in order to reduce that disparity and show the critical value of diversity, equity, and inclusion for our service members across the board. Great, thank you, Kirk. There's a there's a lot to a lot to grab onto there. So we're gonna I want to hear from Dina, and then we'll uh, and then we'll we'll roll into our conversation. So, Dina Goble, the floor is yours. Hey, thanks, Ron. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Kirk. In September, my senior year of high school, at 17 years old, I enlisted in the Army Reserve, and it became one of my many part-time jobs that got me through college. I spent the first 17 and a half years of my career as an enlisted soldier and then became an officer. So I've held 16 different ranks in the Army, exposing me to a pretty wide breadth of experience across the force. So during my 35 plus year career, a lot has changed both in the Army and in the society that we serve, including the Department of Defense's policies on diversity, equity, and inclusion. As one of my topics, I look specifically at the evolution of the military's LGBTQ policies. I lived and served through the entire evolution. In 1987, when my parents signed a release so that I could enlist, the recruiter asked me a series of screening questions. Have you ever or do you now smoke marijuana? Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Have you ever or do you intend to engage in homosexual acts? any of it which would have been disqualifying if I had answered yes. In 1987, when I answered those questions and I emphatically said no, I wasn't lying, but it wouldn't be long after that that I realized, in fact, I not only was going to have to serve in silence, but I would have to lie to continue to serve. Six years later, 1993, the policy went from a complete ban on homosexuality to one called Don't Ask, Don't Tell, where the LGB service members were no longer asked about their sexuality as part of their initial screening process. But we were allowed to enter service as long as we would compartmentalize our lives and never talk about it. There were now three things directly related to sexuality that would get a person discharged, an act, admission, or an attempt to marry someone of the same sex. To be clear though, there were numerous other cover charges used to discharge members of the LGB community before and during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
If they were unable to make a case for homosexuality stick, they would use things like conduct unbecoming, allegations of indecent acts, or false official statements. And the fact is, really, during the first few years of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, discharges of homosexuality actually rose significantly. That ultimately denied individuals access to veterans' health care, burial rights, education benefits, and often impacted their future job prospects based on their discharge classification, simply because they wanted to protect democracy by serving our nation, but because of who they love, they were not allowed to. Don't Ask, Don't Tell remained Congress's policy for 18 years. It was 2011, 24 years into my military career that the policy was repealed. It took years of service members in my community serving in silence and denying personal relationships to demonstrate that we are not the threat. It took years to break down the barriers, but I found that while many people will say that blood is thicker than water, I found that blood, sweat, and tears shared between service members forms bonds that will withstand our social differences. I grew up in a really small community with no exposure to people who didn't look like me, act like me, pray like me. Thankfully, my military experience has allowed me to not only be exposed to people who do not share my demographics or beliefs, but to get to know, trust, and grow with people from a vast cross-section of our country who have made the same commitment as I and with whom I share a common purpose to support and defend our Constitution so that we can be different. You know, Dina, that last comment that I think that pulls together both of what uh, you have talked about, right, is that, it, and I, I want to throw this question to both of you, and that is, let's talk about the value of diversity um, in the sense that, you know, in, in a certain way, right, the Army, of course, prizes uniformity, right? They make you wear uniforms. Um, but the uniform, the, the, those outward uniformities um, are also in defense of a diverse society. And so how would you frame in this conversation the, the positive value of diversity within the force? So diversity, as, as it comes in, when you look at people who have overcome uh, barriers, whether it be to enlistment or to their involvement in society, whatever it may be, that gives them a resilience and a different way of looking at problems and overcoming situations that may not be found in a more homogeneous population. And mm -hmm. when we bring in people with diverse backgrounds, you know, demographic diversity, whatever it might be, we bring in different ideas and ways to solve problems or address situations that we might not other otherwise have access to. That's really good. Kirk, what do you think? I'd like to connect on that point that Dina made about innovation and creativity. Um, overall, as we look at diversity and inclusivity, we hope for the different attributes. We hope for the different backgrounds itself. Um, and largely because we're at a very high High time in history now for the military where the human domain becomes even more critical to what our operations are looking at um, to the 140 countries where our military operates at today. So if we're looking at engagement, multicultural engagements across the spectrum, we need a various level of thought, the emotional intelligence that's expected from our service members, the willingness to understand the history, the critical attributes of the culture that they're engaging, and just 
different backgrounds and understanding how these various cultures are coming together and interacting. And I feel like this exists, needs to exist critically at the junior level, but among our senior leaders, that innovative innovation and thought from the diverse spectrum or diverse, diverse backgrounds only allows for a much more um, creative ingenuity when it comes to solutions for the unique problem sets that we had, that exist today. Sure. Well, and and this there there are two questions that come to mind about this. I want to ask one of them first and come back to the other one. And that is that for for you, Kirk, you know, when when a senior leader comes to you and you know puts his hand on your shoulder metaphorically and says, I really want to ask you about BLM or I want to ask you about diversity. Um, what is it, what kind of challenge is it for the member of the unit who is, let's say, visibly different from other members of the unit, right? I mean, in the sense of what is the, are we, are we expecting too much within the service from the people who are of diverse communities? Um, uh, in the sense, we're expecting you to speak for everybody uh, you, you know, you're expected to speak for every African American soldier about about BLM, or could, because you're the because you know maybe you're the one African American soldier that your commanding officer knows or um, or feels comfortable asking the question. How should we deal with this kind of issue? Because you know, obviously, people are going to ask, and you know, if we if we're serious about diverse uh, perspectives, how do we how do we do this in a way that is sensitive to the fact that perhaps the African American soldier some days just wants to be a soldier? Thank you for that wonderful question. I, I think overall, and I look back at that experience in Afghanistan and the, the senior leader sitting down with me, mm-hmm. was one critical attribute was a relationship that we had existing prior to. He had that personal relationship to know me as um, a cyber officer. He had the personal relationship to know what was my family, um, inter- interracial background of, of mm-hmm. my family. Right. And overall to have a much better personal insight into my life itself. So when it came to the conversation, it was from a feeling of empathy, not of sympathy, but more so, hey, I'd like to understand what this perspective is from you. And I also like to understand potentially how this may impact other other service members that, that are here within our formation. So I feel like if you have that bridge personal relationship established prior to, you could have that difficult conversation because you now look at it from the receiving end. You now look at it from an empathetic standpoint and educational value. And although you can't speak on behalf of your entire ethnicity, it's an opportunity itself of cleaning up some, um, some confusion, some misunderstandings and allow some better insight as far as cultural awareness. And you're you're actually excited by the fact of their interests and their, their um, personal development. I like the way you put that. And so the idea is, is that you have to be, uh, to use the old um, uh, New York State lottery line, right? You have to be in it to win it, right? You, that you actually, you have to, once you have people in the unit, right, then you can have these kinds of conversations with Dina. So that gets the question for you, right? Is that, you know, somebody is not, you know, the fact that LGB uh, service members um, have been able to serve in silence means that there's always been that pressure of don't tell everybody exactly who you are, or you can only tell certain people. Um, and so how do you get to that point? Uh, and this is because this is a matter for the role of the individual soldier, but also the role of policy, right? You've talked about policy with don't ask, don't tell. But how does how does an individual soldier who wants to help, let's say, not only wants to be able to say, hey, I want to serve 
with everybody knowing exactly who I am. And also I want to, I want to do my part to help people who are not like me to understand me and people like me, right? How do we, how do we do that in a way that's not just, we're expecting, you know, we're expecting you, you know, Sergeant Goble or anywhere or, or specialist Goble, corporal Goble, go way back to the beginning. When you said you had 16 uh, ranks, I'm trying to think about what they would all be. We'll have to talk about that off offline, <laughs> but the, um, but the, um, you know, at what point is it, you know, we're, we're, we're putting an awful lot of pressure on you on 22 year old Dina Goble to uh, figure out who she's allowed to tell who she is. Um, what should we do? You know, so how do we balance the idea of having policies and changing policies, but all um, with just the desire to allow service members to find people that they can talk to and explain who they are, right? How did this work for you? But also how do you see this working for other LGB service members? Yeah, thanks, Ron. So I think you said it when you were talking to Kirk, when you said you have to be in it to win it. Mm -hmm. And that really was where 22 year old Dina was. Mm -hmm. When I decided I was getting out of the Army Reserve and going in the IRR because I could no longer live this life. Mm. Um, integrity meant a lot to me, and this just wasn't for me. I didn't stay in the IRR very long because I saw other people going and testifying before Congress about their service. I saw the request for the Government Accounting Office or general accounting office to do a report to say, what is this costing us and what is the risk? And all of that coming back and saying, there is no risk. Mm -hmm. There is no problem. And I, I recognized that I needed to be in it. Mm -hmm. So I laced my boots back up and I went back in before I ever completed um, before I even completed a year in the IRR. And explain for our, for our audience who might not know what does IRR stand for? Yeah, it's the individual retired reserve where mm -hmm. you still have to be available to serve if the military needs you. So you're not out, but you're mm -hmm. also not actively participating. Right. It's a short term option. Yeah. Thanks. And you and you made the decision, you made the decision, you know, you 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 felt as though the pressure was such that it might be better better to get out, but you made the decision to come back in. And was it watching other because we're back to this idea, right? Is was it watching other people make the decision that helped you to see that you were not alone? Is that what did that, it? That was definitely a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And seeing that, you know, this was 1993 and the belief that perhaps there was going to be a change. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. Don't Ask, Don't Tell came through, looking back, that was a horrible policy to live under. However, it was so much better because I no longer had to lie. Yeah. So my integrity right. could remain intact. Um, yeah. I couldn't have a family. I couldn't, you know, there were a lot of things that were really bad about that, but it allowed me to go ahead and serve and then over time create allies and prove that in, in a lot of cases, the members of the LGB community that continued to serve were among the top performers in mm -hmm. their units mm -hmm. because they didn't want to give any reason for someone to look any deeper into their personal life to only recognize them as a high quality service member so that they would want to them to be on their team and to partner with them and look past all of those other things where I talked about that bond, you know, being able to surpass our social differences. Mm -hmm. And I can say that I have 
friends today who our views on social um, differences are very diverse. Mm -hmm. We don't mm -hmm. agree on a lot of things, but I also know that if I were to call them, I could absolutely 100% count on them mm -hmm. just in spite of that. In spite of that. And, and the idea of right, diversity means diversity, right? If we are talking about people can be different, they can have different attitudes. However, right, it also means that we have a common respect for each other, right? So that's that, that challenge, right? How do you defend a society if you don't believe all the people in that society are worth defending? Um, and, and, and so Kirk, go ahead. Cause I was going to throw this also to you is, is how did you feel? What were conversations on this topic like here during your year at the war college? It's been very, very much educational itself. Um, the program on strategic leadership, hmm? which has allowed a lot more development at the senior level of what is the, um, how do you reflect the, the, the appropriate culture and climate that you want within your organization? Uh, what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean? What are the initiatives of the task force and how they're looking at benefiting um, recruiting and retention, how they're looking at the ascension process and how they're allowing a lot more transparency and some of the issues that are been established or identified for diversity, equity, and inclusion and what is the pathway that goes ahead. And then we've proceeded, uh, we proceeded beyond that point and we've came back to areas like having difficult conversations which each of us, we've all been in the military for over 20 years as we're attending the War College now. We have usually typically comfortable having difficult conversations, but there's certain elements that we have not consistently caught up on in the societal changes that are occurring right now across the nation. The stuff that we're going to have to have more conversations about because we want to actually, we want to adjust things like perceptual barriers that may force people to get out the military. Like one interesting point that I like to connect in with Dina was where she described the high performance itself from the uh, LGBT community and the fact that like the, the necessity in order to perform at a much higher level because you feel otherwise that you may get disparaged because of your diversity that you bring within the organization. So the education that we've had here within the course uh, multiple hours itself. This helps set the foundation as senior leaders that we could actually communicate more effectively to our junior junior officers, our senior non-commissioned officers, and inculcate that culture that we want to achieve and ideally educate our formation even more so about what we're doing for, for DEI. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Well, and, and, and Dina, uh, I want to give you a chance to talk about this. And I also want to, I want to ask the question that uh, I'm pretty sure is going to be on the minds or the thought that's going to be on the minds of some people who listen to this program. And that is, um, why do we have to talk about these things at all? Um, um, are, we, are we distracting the military from our job by talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um, how, do you, how do you frame the, the response to that argument? Or that question. So the reason that we need to talk about it is because it exists, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We have huge gaps in experiences and beliefs. And in order to bridge those gaps, we need to talk about it and get it out in the open so that it's not something that's uncomfortable or unrecognized. As we go through this, and I've, I've heard um, in the past, you know, we're all one color, we're green or we're purple or whatever it might be. And I know that people say that from a good place and they mean well, 
But the fact of the matter is it's not recognizing the fact that we do not all have the same experiences and we don't see things or experience things the same. And I think talking about that definitely helps us to bridge that gap and give us a better understanding of one another. And the more that we're able to understand one another, as Kirk talked about when he said, talked about empathy, mm-hmm. the better we're going to function as a team. See, and, and I guess that's where we you talk about terminology, right? You know, Kirk, your paper, uh, and you're it's speaking about wokeness. And right, the idea of being awake and aware is what it should be what allows one to be empathetic and to, to understand the people that you work with and to understand how they bring their different responses or how they, I should say, how they bring their different experiences into meeting the challenges that you're all going to meet together in the service. Um, what did you say to your commanding officer, Kirk, when, when, uh, when he asked you about, about BLM and wokeness, right? Did you have a definition handy that you gave, that you gave, or did you just, um, I mean, that's what I'm trying to think about what that conversation would be like, right? I mean, you're talking about different experiences, right? Nobody's going to walk up to me and ask me to define what woke is. <laughs> and and people are rarely going to walk up to me and ask me my opinion on BLM. Um, uh, and were you, you know, you say that you sort of this conversation you were prepared for it because you had a good relationship. But what do you say? Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Colonel, um, what's what's BLM and uh, and how do you feel about it? Or... Or how do you define wokeness? How do you deal with that? I wish I had an answer off the cuff that I gave him at the time, but I, I def, definitely paused for uh, more than a few seconds because right. although we had the personal relationship, completely unexpected yep. and in the midst of everything else that we had going on operationally. Right. Um, but after I paused for, for a couple of seconds, I told him, this is my personal opinion as far as Black Life Matters. And it focused largely on we, a lot within my community, want societal reflection, uh, want opportunity, and want basically equality across the, across the board. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of activity that's going on within the nation right now, which suggests that that may not be the case. I, I explained that in the military, I felt generally very accepted across the board. I felt like I've had great opportunity, but I've also had many peers of mine that have gotten out the military because they felt like they were underrepresented. Their values were not appreciated. Yeah. So he allowed me some clear dialogue itself to share some of the reasons why people have retired or gotten out the military early. And I came back to of these conversations do matter because ultimately it's allowing me to feel comfortable with how I feel and, and like to express myself. Ideally, it's education to our senior leaders about this is how some within the respective community may feel about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, just looking largely organizationally about, are we actually getting things right? Do we actually have people that have a voice at the table that matters? Or are we marginalizing certain people because they're not within that in-group population itself because they're not diverse, but they're within that collective homogenous society? Right. Well, and, and, and Dina, I was thinking about this as we were, we're, we're coming up on the end of this conversation, but I'm thinking about, you described the length of your career, the variety of your career, the number of, of ranks that you have held, right? Um, 
one thinks of all kinds of stories about the the brave individual soldier who fights uh, all the way through enemy lines, uh, you know, takes the enemy trench and then gets there and realizes that they are the only member of their unit who made it. And they look around and then what do you do when you're the only person who made it? And how do you reflect on uh, you know, there, there's all these terminology people use like about the leaky pipeline, the fact that people don't stay, as Kirk was saying, and people do leave the service. Um, you know, you've come a long way in the army. Uh, you know, congratulations for that. And when you look around, um, you know, what's your message to people who are well behind you, who have to ask themselves, will I be able to stick it out for 35 years and 16 ranks? Um, what do you say to them? I'm, 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 I'm hung up on those numbers, Dina. I apologize, but I just, <laughs> that's I'm right. Not, I can explain that later. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, so, so I would actually give them two things. One is, you know, one of the army values in addition to integrity, which I value uh, a great deal is personal courage. And we think of that and we often think of crossing enemy lines or the physical courage to save someone from a, a burning car or burning building or something of that nature, but personal courage to stand up for what's right or intervene in situations that are difficult. I convey that quite often with my mm -hmm. soldiers mm -hmm. and encourage them to exercise personal courage in more than just a physical sense. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, soldiers deserve leaders that are like them. Mm -hmm. They deserve people who have experienced discrimination, bias, and frankly, fear, and can show that they have gotten through that. And that's part of my motivation for having stayed this long, mm -hmm. is knowing that people are watching. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter whether I'm doing something great, or if I'm sucking wind on the track <laughs> during an ACFT, they're watching. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important for them to have someone that they can look at and know that it is possible. Mm -hmm. That it is possible. Well, and this, of course, is you know what we hope with the Eisenhower program is we send our War College students in your vast diversity, I would say, in backgrounds and uh, and attitudes and approaches um, to let the world see what we have here at the War College, what we do, uh, to hope that we can spark further dialogue. And I do appreciate the two of you coming on a better piece today to talk about what you do to spark future dialogue. I wish you both enormous success in your future career um, and congratulate you on reaching pretty close to the finish line for the class of 2023 here at the War College. Commencement is coming up. Uh, and thanks both of you. Thank you, Dina Goble. Thank you, Kirk Daniels, for joining us today on A Better Peace. Thank you so much, Ron. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment after you have finished listening to this podcast to go to your podcatcher of choice and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, so that you will never miss a conversation like this one. And why would you want to miss a conversation like this one? And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can find out about us. And that's, we are always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you in the future. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.